On today's show, the federal government is requiring federal workers to be vaccinated or to stay home without pay. Is this a reasonable approach to increasing vaccination? Also, the upcoming municipal election is about more than electing new councillors. On the ballot are questions about going to permanent daylight savings time and getting rid of the equalization system. We'll look at those issues and more. This is Penhold Talk Radio. Welcome to the show. My name is Brian Constantine. I am here with my co-host, Michael Rowland. Hello, hello. So recently, Justin Trudeau announced that his uh, government is going to be uh, instituting a mandatory vaccination policy. And so if you are uh, work for the government, if you are a contractor with the government, there's a good chance that you are going to be required to be vaccinated or uh, forced into unpaid leave of absence. Uh, and don't expect any uh, employment insurance to help you because that will not be available for you as well. Along with this policy uh, of uh, mandatory vaccination is uh, mandatory vaccinations for all travelers uh, on federally regulated um, industries such as planes, trains, uh, boats. And that, that goes for, that's not just international travel, that's if you want to travel uh, anywhere in Canada on those, on those, uh, through those means. And so, uh, this is all with kind of the, 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 uh, the facade at least of, of trying to compel, um, those who have, who've chosen not to be vaccinated, uh, to this point. Now, uh, that that's that motivation seems um is is you know it's, it's well enough by itself if that were the case though i think later on trudeau mentions a few things that that would be a more of more concern uh perhaps in the long term regarding his motivations for this kind of policy uh during the press conference he mentions uh his justifications here by uh, as i quote these travel measures, along with mandatory vaccination for federal employees, are some of the strongest in the world because when it comes to keeping you and your family safe, when it comes to avoiding lockdowns for everyone, this is no time for half measures. Uh, now, I don't know about you, but whenever I hear the government promising to keep me safe, uh, it makes me a little nervous. <laughs> I don't know about you. Uh, it, 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 doesn't, it doesn't give me the, the, the warm, warm, comforting feeling that I'm, I'm thinking he's trying to trying to uh, entice me with. Now, he continues, he says, uh, Trudeau continues to say, if you've done the right thing and, got, and gotten vaccinated, he uses the word gotten, sorry, I oh. can't get past that. <laughs> gotten vaccinated, you deserve the freedom uh, to be safe from COVID, to have your kids safe from COVID, COVID to get back to the things you love. So here, here I got some, some thoughts on this. He, he mentions that uh, these restrictions are here to keep your family safe, your kids safe from COVID. Now, here I thought vaccines have been have been available for for everyone over twelve for for a few months now. Um, so it would seem the the onus now on 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 who has the need to protect who is on individuals to protect themselves. Yeah, uh, and the it would seem that. 
as soon as the vaccinations got or were rolled out, and especially as 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 um, people got vaccinated, this would mean that the government should back off more and more, particularly at a federal federal level on such a big uh, scale. You know, perhaps on a provincial level, we, we can talk about that whether or not there's there's reason there. But I think especially on a federal level, on such a on such a huge scale. Um, it would seem that as vaccinations were, were taken up, that that's what our main protection was going to come from. That's what you would think. That's kind of what they promised. And then as the vaccines came out, now you notice that shift to keeping your kids safe because now the large majority of the adults are vaccinated. They have the protection of the vaccine. So now you're left with what's what's the last point of fear that can be called upon and so now they're calling on the kids who up to this point under 12 couldn't be vaccinated yeah and so you end up you end up with with uh with a, a policy that i think is just overly brought in it really just undercuts this whole argument for what vaccines were actually were were, were marketed as yeah as as this way of getting back to normal and yet here if that if that was the case, then then what's the need for 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 this policy? Um, it doesn't seem like if 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 you if if the vaccine vaccinated are protected, it would seem there's little need for the vaccinated to be isolated from the unvaccinated through public policy. Yes, and that's basically what's going on here. If if it seems to say that if if I want to travel on a plane. Um, the government has to come in and protect me from the person who who's unvaccinated and notice that this is just unvaccinated. It's not like this is an unvaccinated uh, symptomatic person. Yes. So this, yeah. this is not, this isn't, this isn't a contingent upon, you know, your actual health situation. It's just the fact that you are not vaccinated, which should not be the, not, not treated. This, it should not be treated the same as, you know, COVID positive, which a lot of politicians are doing nowadays. Yes. Yeah. Um, if, if you're not, if you're not vaccinated, you have COVID essentially, or at least that's how we must treat you. And so therefore you become kind of the unclean class and you can't partake in normal society. And so we are going to kind of shun you off this side here. Um, but that, that's, that doesn't seem to be fit with what we were promised with these vaccines. Uh, and so, you know, what's, what, how, how does this, how does this really truly make uh, the nation safer by by you know uh, threatening people's jobs and freedom of travel um, if they're not vaccinated. The people who are vaccinated are already protected from them. Uh, it just it doesn't it doesn't there's just something that doesn't jive here. It just it, it, it seems it seems like there would have to be at least I would like to see some some justification from the government whenever they do this. Um, yeah, that's what's missing is the data and the justification. They are forming these policies seemingly based on emotion and public sentiment a lot more than the data that is available. I'm not finding the data that supports these decisions. Yeah, uh, the well, the uh, the Canadian uh, Constitution, the and and the uh, the Constitution. The very first point, it says the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms guarantees the rights and freedoms set out uh, in it subject only to reasonable limits prescribed by law 
as can be demonstrably justified in a free and democratic society. So all these, all these freedoms that, that are laid out in the Constitution, if they are to be um, infringed upon, they have to be done with demonstrable justification. It has to be shown that, that this is the reasonable way, uh, that this is, this is a reasonable approach to doing it. Um, and yet, uh, the, this mandatory vaccination, first of all, like I said, the vaccine itself is meant to be a protection. But then this uh, these uh, this mandatory vaccine um, requirement is going to apply also to um, let's see here to anyone who is um, going to work either in person or remotely. So so you could be a, you could you could stay at home and still be required um, to be vaccinated. Yeah, it's about who you work for, not about keeping your coworkers safe or the industry you work in safe. It's all about the fact that you work for the federal government and they just want a blanket statement of all of them need to have it. And so what and so if if this if this policy is is was solely about um you know protecting the public health system as we've been told why not create these 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 caveats? Why not create the these this this space for people who have reasonable um, who've reasonably re chosen not to 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 become vaccinated at this time? Um, if if they can be accommodated to 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 work from home, why not do that? That would seem to infringe the least upon the the uh, the rights of these people. And still allow them to function in society, uh, the, and 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 yet it, it goes much. It, it goes far broad. Like I said, this is this is such a such a broad policy um, that I don't I don't see how it can be justified by saying this is required for public health. There's yeah. clearly uh, uh, situations in here where where the person who's working from home unvaccinated is no threat to the public health system um and and certainly not in a way that that's going to be uh, rectified by this kind of this kind of uh, overreaching policy the other the other part of it um is that that trudeau states that you deserve the freedom to be safe from covid um yeah. If you, so yeah, to, to kind of requote him here, uh, it says, if you've done the right thing and gotten vaccinated, there's that word again, you deserve the freedom to be safe from COVID. Now here, I think uh, two points to be made. First, again, this, this protection from COVID was what we were promised with, with the vaccines. Um, and so if, if the vaccines are what provides us quote, this freedom from COVID, um, then these restrictions are simply unnecessary. But I think it's it's kind of the, uh, the kind of the the other element of this that makes it more um, worrisome is that this freedom from COVID, if if, if that is the goal, if, if the goal is freedom from COVID, it sets to, it sets up a justification that would allow the government to keep restrictions in place permanently. Yes. Yeah. There, there's just how how can you promise to keep uh, someone free from an, from a virus, particularly one that that spreads like like COVID does. Um, 
it, 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 a lot of these, a lot of these restrictions and pa vaccine passports are being put in place with the promise that, that these are just temporary for now. And yet with these kind of, with this kind of justification, freedom to be safe from COVID, like I, I don't, it almost envisions a world in which somehow this is eradicated. And yet we look at it, the, the, this, these vaccines do not act in the same way as say the vaccines for measles. Yeah. Work. It, it just does not work on that kind of scale. We, we see people getting breakthrough um, cases. Recent report uh, showed that, that the, the, um, the prevention ability of these vaccines has wa wanes over time. So the antibodies that are produced by, by the vaccine um, decline over time. And so it, it, while, the, while the ability of the vaccine to prevent, say, severe reactions to the presence of the virus uh, seems to, to, to hold, the fact that it doesn't, it's not, not as preventative uh, of, of, of actually contracting the virus in the first place means that this is probably not going anywhere. No, we're going to have to learn to live with it, not eradicate it. it I think, and I think a lot, of, a lot of countries have admitted that point to now where the goal is no longer zero COVID. The goal is to manage the COVID. Yes. And policies like this seem to still stem from the idea of eradicating. When you're trying to coerce that final few percent of people to get the vaccine, you're acting as though once they've got it, then we're good. Then this is over. Yeah. And yet the policy doesn't seem to <laughs> seem to, to uh, work with that framework because apparently the vaccinated vaccinated have to be protected from the environment. Yeah. And that's where it seems to contradict <laughs> itself. You're acting as though you can eradicate it by getting those final few people vaccinated, but those who are vaccinated need to be protected from the unvaccinated. So clearly the vaccine does not prevent the transmission so where, where are we left? We're yeah. now left in a situation where the vaccine both does and doesn't work or yeah. does and doesn't do what's promised. Mm -hmm. And and so if you, if, if the goal here is, is if the, if the government is putting these, these policies in place with the goal of, of granting us freedom from COVID, this is, this makes it a perpetual thing. And, and, and you're seeing boosters come out soon, you know, this, it's, it's not, it's, it's, it's very easily conceived that this policy is going to just be rolled over into the fact where, well, okay, now you need, need three shots. Now you need a fourth shot to qualify. Reg yeah. Regular annual boosters or something to that effect, where if you are going to be employed by this, by the federal government or federal industries or even private companies are doing the same thing you're going to see the requirement for regular booster shots yeah and so what ends up happening is you, you it creates this permanent second class citizen yeah. who who can't work for the government and and increasingly can't work for many private companies mm -hmm. uh no longer are they allowed to travel uh through planes and trains um they 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 really do become um, uh, a subclass of society, uh, a really a, a shunned element. Yes. And, and that just cannot be a healthy condition for, for, for a society. No, no, that doesn't, does not lead to a good nation. Yeah.
All right. So October 18th, uh, as we move on, is not just uh, municipal election day. It's also a referendum day here in Alberta. While selecting your next council, the province is also asking for your opinion on two matters, uh, equalization and daylight saving time. The, the daylight saving time question is it's, it's pretty straightforward. And when you go into uh, the, the poll and look at the ballot, it's going to ask you to answer yes or no on this question. Do you want Alberta to adopt year-round year daylight saving time, which is summer hours, eliminating the need to change our clocks twice a year? And so if this was passed, uh, if, if, this, if this question receives more yeses than noes, uh, the, le uh, the Alberta legislature would be required to do away with sp with the spring and uh, spring and winter time change or time changes, leaving us on summertime all year. Uh, this would mean that we would be on the same time as Saskatchewan year round, and kind of a bit strangely, uh, we would be one hour ahead of BC from March to November, but two hours ahead during the winter months. Uh, uh, at least uh, that is at least until they uh, themselves change their time, which they seem to be uh, likely heading towards in the near future. Near near future. Now, you know, I did I didn't I didn't have much of an opinion uh, either way on this issue, uh, at least until I started looking into this more closely. Yeah, I honestly I liked the sound of losing the time changes in the spring and fall. I'm all for not having that nuisance and. Yeah, that would, that would be spectacular. But until recently and actually reading about it, I didn't really give it any thought. It Once you realize some of the implications of, especially sticking with the daylight saving time, the summer hours, there's some pretty serious implications into the fall and winter months. Did you, did you ever sense uh, that, that, that tiredness from the time change? Did you ever feel feel off? Maybe a little bit. I've never really, at least as an adult, I've never really thought much about it. I've never felt that it makes that much difference. It's just a bit of a pain and yeah. probably don't take advantage of the changes the way I should. <laughs> it's more when you come to the adding an hour instead of getting an extra hour of sleep, you just say, oh, I can stay up an hour later. So you don't really... Yeah don't really benefit from it in that way. And on the opposite end, I probably don't go to bed any earlier to make up for it either, but you get by, it doesn't really change a whole lot. Yeah. Yeah. To me, to me, the, the fallback always meant like another hour of movie watching at night. Yeah, exactly. It, it's it, just it's, an extra bit to your evening. Yeah. And so it, it, and especially now with the phones, you know, they, they, with them automatically changing, you know, the most difficult thing about the time change for me was, you know, trying to figure out how to change the oven or the microwave clock or something like that. Or finding the clocks you forgot you had. <laughs> You're That's searching right. around your house. Like, did I get them all? I can't yeah. even remember anymore. Yeah. Uh, and so, yeah, I, I, I didn't, you know, it wasn't a, it wasn't a huge deal um, to, to me. And so I think a lot of people probably just go into this question thinking the same way. It's just, it would be nice not to have to change the clocks twice yeah. a year. You know, maybe for some people, they, they might feel a little more tired at the, that spring ahead or something like that. But ultimately, I don't, you know, it, it, it seemed when we, when we look at it, it's a really minor inconvenience. Um, but now when kind of the, this, this whole idea, uh, let's see, uh, it would, 
this whole idea of, of daylight savings times, uh, uh, it really, it kind of is, is more is popularly attributed to Benjamin Franklin, and, and he kind of suggested it as a way to to save on candles. You know, you don't have to work, <laughs> burn them so late into the morning. Um, but I think more interestingly, the the first serious proposal for for daylight saving time was presented in 1895 by George Hudson. He was a he was a New Zealander, and he wanted more hours after work, uh, at least more daylight hours after work, in order to to collect and examine bugs and insects. He, he was an entomologist, and so um, he made his proposal to to the I think it was the Wellington Philosophical Society, <laughs> arguing for 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 extra hours in the afternoon. Um, uh, now, perhaps more relevant to to Albertans, uh, I think they would understand the the case presented by William Willett. Uh, he was an uh, Englishman who argued a few years later for more daylight savings or for, for more daylight hours in the afternoon, uh, at least in part because he wanted more time to finish his evening golf round. He was, he was uh, upset by the fact that dusk would always cut into his game. Talk about selfish motivations. Yeah, but I think, I think, uh, I think you find a lot of, uh, a lot of uh, support nowadays. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, in a very Canadian way, I think it's uh, incumbent upon me to, to point out that uh, Canada was, uh, owns the distinction of having the very first city to adopt daylight saving time. Uh, Port, or, uh, Port Arthur, Ontario, uh, on July 1st, 1908, became the first city to, to adopt uh, daylight saving time. And then that was quickly followed up by Aurelia, Ontario as well. Now, when we look at kind of daylight savings on a, on a, on a national scale, um, it was really World War I that kind of drove this. Uh, progression. Uh, Germany and its ally, uh, Austria and Hungary, shifted their clocks in 1916, in part to to conserve the coal usage during the wartime, and 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 many other countries then kind of followed suit along with them uh, during during that time. Now some gave up the the daylight savings uh, post-war, but Canada Canada, at least for one nation, uh, has kept it ever since. Now, as, as interesting as, as that may be, I think more relevant is, is the several attempts that, that some countries have made to shift to permanent daylight saving time. And so that's, that's where we shift one hour ahead from our standard time, which is what this refer referendum question is, is, is pr uh, proposing. Now, uh, just to, to be clear, when, we, when you look at the globe, it's split up into 24 different time zones. And, uh, and where those time zones end up, that's what's considered standard time. And so, for example, uh, Saskatchewan, they are, they are on central standard time year-round. And so uh, what, what this uh, referendum question, though, is proposing is that we shift from our standard time, which would be one hour behind where Saskatchewan is, if, if we we're just going by international datelines, where we would be constantly one hour ahead of where um, where we would normally be, normally ahead of one hour ahead of standard time. So this is this referendum question is proposing to go to permanent permanent daylight saving time. So we're always one hour kind of shifted ahead of where we should be uh, according to international uh, time zones. Now, this shift to, to permanent daylight savings has has happened in the past. But the kind of the short answer uh, is this has not gone well where it has been tried. 
So the U.S. experimented uh, on, with permanent daylight savings in 1974, uh, and that experiment actually lasted only a year. They, 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 they have tried it for a year and said, nope, this was good enough for us. We, we are going back. Uh, England, uh, they, 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 they were able to put up with it for, for at least three years. Uh, from 1968 to 1971, they, they, they put in a year-round daylight savings time. And again, uh, they went back in 71, back to standard time. Now, more recently, um, Russia um, tied, Britain, or tied Britain's three-year run. They, they tried permanent daylight savings from, from 2011 to, th to, to 2014. Uh, and, and, and quite remarkably, it, was, it uh, apparently got so bad, and the population complained so much, that even the, the Russian government had to listen to their people, and they went back to their standard time. <laughs> That's really saying something. That, 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 that should not go without notice, that, that the Russian people actually convinced the, the Russian government to do something. Um, that, like I said, yeah, that, 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 that means something, I think, and then something we should be paying attention to. Now, in, in each of these attempts, the, the main complaint was, was largely the same. This is the fact that by shifting an hour ahead, it means that we are going to have later winter sunrises. So for Penhold, um, sunrise would be after 9 a.m. from November 18th to February uh, 10th. So for, for about four months, you will not see the sun before 9 a.m. Uh, uh, in the morning. Yeah, that <laughs> that's pretty awful. And that's that's in one part of the province. You see it even worse in other sections of the province. So you just think what it's got to be like for, you're not seeing the sun until halfway through your morning. Yeah. And it's only get, and like you said, it only gets worse the more north and west you travel in the province. Yeah. We're, we're fairly central east west. So you think that there's a good chunk of the province that's going to be even worse than Penhold. Yeah. And you, I think you're mentioning that some of the Grand Prairie, was it like it? You gotta get 10, 10 30. past 10 30 is the low the worst point of their winter yeah so for for us in penhold sunrise or the, the the latest sunrise would be uh on december 21st uh and sunrise would occur at 9 42 uh 9 42 in the morning and so you know just think about this on a practical scale um this means that uh you will be sending your kids off to to school and, and they will be starting a good chunk of their morning classes in the complete dark. Um, likewise, workers will have to commute uh, and begin work uh, before sunrise. And, and that already kind of happens, I think, to a lot of people yeah. already uh, living in uh, Canada, given our northern status. Yeah. But now just, just add an extra hour to that darkness. Um, and so when, when you these, these longer and darker mornings... Um, not only just lead to, you know, darker mornings, um, where, you know, when you're going to school in the dark or, or commuting in the dark, but these, these also, as the studies have shown, led to more car accidents because you are traveling at night during, or at least in the darkness. It's, it's morning, but it's, it's, it's basically nighttime as far as it goes. Your natural circadian rhythm That's is not thing. going to catch up the same way. And so, yeah, you naturally have more people more tired at that hour. <laughs> I say <laughs> hour right. of the day. It's, but that time of day, that time of the actual natural light cycle, you're going to have more people more tired, and it is a risk. Yeah. So yeah, not only do you have the winter driving conditions, 
in the dark already. But as you say, the the later uh, later sunrises messes with when your body expects to be woken up. Yeah, and this is just kind of one of those things of modern society now is that we are governed by the clock. Yeah, we've shifted away from the natural rhythms of sunlight, dark, and so on, and shifted to we try to overcome those natural rhythms and schedule it ourselves. Mm -hmm. And you can only go so far. Your body responds to natural light. And so shifting it even further is not easy. No, and and so all these things kind of compiled. And, and, and as I point out, uh, America has tried it. Uh, Britain has tried it. Um, Russia has tried it. So these are all large scale um, experiments at permanent daylight saving. Yeah. And, and they have not lasted. Now, there, there are some places, uh, I'll give it credit. Uh, there are some places where um, the, the later mornings do occur. Um, and, and, and so places further north, like in the Yukon, or even Regina, they're, 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 um, the, the peak of the sun um, is at, tw at one o'clock. So it's, 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 the time isn't exactly the same. And so there's a sense that, yeah, they're sort of on daylight saving, but that's more of a geographical issue. Whereas we are kind of willingly putting ourselves <laughs> in a situation to, to uh, I think, really experience uh, uh, some unusual um, uh, conditions that, that we just aren't, aren't accustomed to. Yeah. And so you, you wonder how long... This is it just it just seems like it's such a silly question almost, you know, about when do we set our clocks? But that's, I think, some serious uh, ramifications. Yeah. Yeah. I think there's more to it than people realize. Uh, and so when when we one of the or some of the arguments for, you know, the whole shifting of the clocks uh, or against the shifting of the clocks is that, you know, it it, it does lead to upsetting our, our normal um, rhythms. Um, it does lead to pr or productive or uh, decreases in production and more uh, car accidents. There's some health um, issues, situations kind of tied to that. But those are, those those I sense are more kind of statistical um, um, findings. It's not like we it's not like we wake up uh, on, on daylight savings and, oh, and and experience more car accidents on on a personal level. Right. This though the, on the shifting the shifting of the sunrise, I think is going to impact us a lot more than perhaps many people are are, are anticipating, mm -hmm. and so uh, I think this deserves a little more thoughtfulness when we go to the ballot box, whether or not we are just trying to get rid of an inconvenience in 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 shifting our clocks twice a year, uh, and we really need to kind of think about what this extra darkness would mean if we do go to permanent daylight savings times. So it's at least something, something not to, to be considered lightly. So uh, give it, give it some thought, maybe may sleep on it. Now in support of it, my selfish side says, I like the idea. Cause in the winter where we live, I go to work in the dark. Anyway, I love the idea of having actual sunlight after I finish the work day rather than going to work in the dark and coming home in the dark. So, I can see some appeal to it. I'm not sure that's enough reason to vote in favor, but it's something to consider. Now, the second referendum question is about equalization. 
Uh, and it asks again a yes or no question. Should Section 36, Subsection 2 of the Constitution Act 1982, Parliament and the Government of Canada's commitment to the principle of making equalization payments, be removed from the Constitution? Now, uh, uh, I suppose here it's probably best that if we're going to talk about removing part of the Constitution, we should know what that part says. So here it is, Section 36, uh, Subsection 2 of the Canadian Constitution as it was written in 1982. It says, Parliament and the Government of Canada are committed to the principle of making equalization payments to ensure that provincial governments have sufficient revenues to provide reasonably, uh, reasonably comparable levels of public services at reasonably comparable levels of taxation. So, in other words, the provinces paid for by the government should be available across the provinces at comparable tax rates. So, for example, the education system in Alberta should be available in, uh, in New Brunswick at comparable levels of service, at comparable levels of taxation. So, if Alberta is able to, to, to um, provide a certain level of education, New Brunswick shouldn't have to tax their, their citizens at twice the rate in order to provide the same service. Um, the, everything should be on an even taxation level to equal service levels as much as, as possible. Sounds fair and sounds like good intentions. <laughs> there, there is good intentions. It's a, we are a country after all. Uh, and so there is, there is some um, sense in which there is a collective that we should be uh, sharing in. Uh, not unlike, uh, say, the, the taxes being paid by someone in Lethbridge go partly to fund a road here in Penhold. Yeah. There, there is, there is this, this sharing of, of taxes going on. But here, just to kind of clarify um, this equalization system that's in place, uh, it, has to be, it has to be re, uh, brought up that this isn't a, a provincial program. This isn't like Alberta is sending money over to, to Quebec or over to New Brunswick. This is a federal federal program. So all the taxes that the, that the feds collect um, are all collected together and pooled together from all the provinces of all Canadian or all Canadians, and it's from that pool of money that is kind of distributed back out to the provinces. Now there, there's a few different pro, or a few different programs that kind of put money back into the provinces. Um, the health the health transfer payments and social transfer payments. Those are given back to the provinces on a per capita basis. So that's based upon how many people you have in your pop in your population of, of any given province. So, so everyone receives the same amount of money uh, per person. And, and that those two programs, the, the health transfer payments and the social transfer payments, those uh, total about $55 billion last year. Now, equalization is a little bit different. What, uh, how that uh, equalization payments are made uh, on the basis of kind of two primary things. First is how much revenue can be collected through taxes in, in a province. And then to this is added how much revenue is, is generated by provinces, natural resources. So things like royalties right. are put into this. So when you, when you look at a province like Alberta, uh, if, you, if, you, if you apply the same tax rates to uh, Alberta as you do to New Brunswick, you would collect more tax revenue from from Alberta. Um, there's just there's just more income being brought in, more 
revenue being generated on a per capita basis, which means your tax uh, percent would, would collect more money for the province and ultimately for the government. Um, and so this is done across all the provinces. Um, you figure out how much tax revenue you could gain and how much, um, or how much revenue is brought in through natural resources. And then you, then you divide it or you average it out across the 10 provinces to kind of get a baseline amount of how much, um, uh, how much revenue could be brought in through the provinces. And then you compare that to what uh, the, uh, you compare that to what each province's um, tax revenue actually is. And so what you're gonna find is that some provinces are, are over this average and some are below. In order to bring the, the, the have not provinces as they're often referred to, bring them up to this, this tax revenue average these are where that the equalization payments come in. They bring those provinces up to 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 kind of this average level. So I think for for just a simplified example, um, say there's a ten percent um, tax applied to 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 two provinces with equal population. Now that ten percent tax collects a million dollars in taxes from one province, but from the other one it only collects a half a million dollars. Now, if you were to average out what the tax revenue is for those two provinces, it would be $750,000. Now, in this scenario, this second province would then receive an equalization payment of a quarter million dollars. So it bring their, their $500,000 up to that, that three quarter of a million average. Whereas the first province, the, the one that brought in a million dollars would actually receive nothing. And, and, and so, this is this is the equalization payment simplified down. I hopefully hopefully that's clear. I think that makes it pretty clear. It's obviously like you say it's simplified, but it makes it clear that the goal is just to bring everybody up to a baseline average level so that nobody's left way behind. That's right. And seems so, fair. Yeah, and so because in, otherwise the the argument is in order for uh, these have not provinces or these poorer provinces. Uh, in order to bring them up to say the same level as as the richer ones, the, the ones that are bringing in more revenue, um, they would require higher taxes, and this would go against the equalization principle that's on the, the referendum uh, ballot. Now, just to get, give you a sense of of where some of this money is, is going, um, last year about twenty billion dollars were given out in equalization payments. So BC, Alberta, Ontario. And Newfoundland and Labrador all received no equalization payments. They're all considered have provinces. Um, Newfoundland is actually a fairly recent one within the last, I think, 10 to 15 years since they started developing their natural resources. That, yeah, that would be largely resource-based. Yeah, so they, they started to, to really um, um, develop their offshore uh, oil um, uh, uh, drilling. And so that moved them into the have provinces. Uh, uh, the, for the the provinces that are receiving um, equalization payments. Uh, Prince Edward Island received 419 million. Nova Scotia, New Brunswick, and Manitoba, they all received uh, about $2 million, a little over two, two, sorry, a little over $2 billion. And then Quebec received over $13 billion. Now, remember these payments though are, are given out on a per capita basis. And so this explains why Quebec receives such a large payment due to their large population. If you're looking at a per capita basis, uh, Quebec is actually the lowest of, uh, uh, lowest one, I believe, of the ones receiving equalization payments. Uh, PEI, I think, is, is up towards the top. 
as far as, as how much they're receiving on a per capita basis. It would still seem that there's, there must not be a lot of resource development in Quebec in order to boost them up a little bit if they're still receiving that kind of level of equalization. It's certainly a big element of the equalization formula. And then, and so remember that this, this question is about the, the kind of the equalization system as a whole. Yeah. It's not about changing the formula that kind of determines what these equalization payments are, are for. So I think it's a really important element yeah. of this. Yeah, I think the idea of either we keep it or we scrap it doesn't seem to cover all of the intricacies of this system. The overall, the system doesn't sound bad. We have a tendency to look at certain provinces. We look at Quebec receiving a huge amount of money while other provinces are receiving none, and it seems unfair. But I think there's a lot more intricacies to this than just we keep it or we get rid of it. Yeah, there's certainly... Um... The, this idea of unfairness is certainly kind of the, the most, probably the most popular argument, um, especially in Alberta. When, when, we, when, we, when we've seen our economy uh, struggle over the last uh, few years, particularly tied to the lower, or lower oil prices, and yet we still see Quebec receiving $13 billion in equalization payments, um, it certainly does raise our, our, our sense of, what is that all about? <laughs> like, yeah. uh, we need that money here, don't we? Um, and then this sense of unfairness is just further compounded by by the um, by Quebec's rejection of pipelines um, that would ultimately benefit the Alberta economy, which is what is the main driver for this whole equalization payment uh, system. Right. And so, yeah, I, I get it. This is uh, there. There is certainly. Um, something to be said for uh, this at least uh, face value sense of unfairness in the system. Now, I think in regards to this, it has to be said that the equalization payment is first of all paid out by taxes collected by the federal government. So I don't think it's, it's fair to say that $13 billion of Alberta money is being thrown into Quebec or you know, $2 billion is given to, to New, New Brunswick. From Alberta, it's, it's it's really not how it works. It, it's it's again pooled cash from across the country. Yeah. Um, so we, uh, if, if if we're getting criticized, let's try let's try to do it accurately at least. Um, now, it, that said, it is equally true though that Alberta contributes more per capita than these other have-not provinces. That's what makes us have pro uh, have province. We yeah. we generate a lot of tax revenue that gets put into the pool in the middle of the table that the federal government then dishes out. And so a significant amount of the billions of dollars that are given out in Quebec are given out in, in equalization payments, uh, a significant portion is certainly um, as a result of the taxes that are, that are brought in through Alberta taxpayers. Now, I think at this point though, it's important to realize that the equalization payments aren't um, aren't meant to kind of uh, adjust rapidly to to changes in, in a particular economy uh, per provincial economy, and so when when Alberta saw its uh, saw this significant dip in its in its economy, it's not the the equalization payments that that 
that we should be looking towards is actually another program. It's called the Financial Stabilization Program. It's again, another federal program from that pool of money that it collects from us uh, on a federal level that's given back to provinces um, to stabilize their economies, especially during severe swings in it. So what this, what this program does is that whenever uh, a, a provincial economy um, dips uh, below 5% year on year, the federal government gives them money to keep them at that level. So if you, so a provincial government should never, or a provincial economy should never dip more than 5% uh, over the, over a year, because whenever it does, the, the federal government then gives you that money to, to kind of keep you up. Uh, and so it's kind of meant to, to even out those, those fluctuations, which is really um, what a lot, I think a lot of the kind of the, um, the animosity or the unfairness that, that we sense. Again, we look at Alberta, at Quebec receiving all these billions. Uh, Alberta economy is struggling. Why, how is that? How is that fair? That, that's certainly a question to be that we'll look at in a second. But where we kind of where we should be looking to to make up some of those lost funds is um, is uh, is through the stabilization program. And, and Alberta certainly has received significant funds from from this program but because of certain uh cap restrictions which uh, which i won't get into at this moment it hasn't received as much as it could have um but that's 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 where the perhaps the the focus should be on is on the stabilization program instead of the equalization program it's the stabilization program that that helps provinces when it has severe uh swings in the economy well and you were saying earlier that the, there's a lag time with the calculations for the equalization there's also an averaging of three years that it's calculated from so so yeah like you said when we see these bad years in alberta where oil prices have dipped dramatically and we're we're bringing in far less revenue the equalization was never designed to compensate for that that type of a downturn in the economy like so yes something like the financial stabilization that that is supposed to be where we're looking. Yeah, that's that's in, where. In, instead, we look at these these things like the equalization and think, "Well, where's our equalization?" Yeah, it, the the it's it's at least on a political level, it's easier to gin up support when you can point to a province that is already seemingly against a lot of the interests of of Alberta and show that they are receiving thirteen billion dollars yeah. and claim that's all Alberta money. Again, not exactly true, but it certainly sells uh, better on on the on kind of the, the political messaging scene. Yeah. But really, I think where the focus should be on is is on uh, the stabilization program and whether or not that is being fully utilized um, to help out Alberta. So certainly, certainly something to keep in mind. Now, I'll just go back to this kind of idea of unfairness. I think uh, regarding the equalization. Uh, program. I, th I think there, I think there is something to be said for, for the fact that the equalization system, um, in principle has kind of a, a built in unfairness to it. When I'm paying for groceries or taxes, I deserve uh, a fair, uh, return in value for my money. Um, the, the tricky part though, is that when I'm measuring value I'm getting for taxes is, is much more difficult than simply looking into my shopping cart. If I spent a hundred dollars at the shopping cart or at the, at the grocery store, I can look in my cart and say, yes, I got good value for that. 
it's not so clean and simple when it comes to taxes. Yeah. Especially when those are being collected over such a large area uh, of people. Um, like I said, we, we, the, the province, or taxes are being pooled across the provinces, across, across the country. And so uh, it, it's difficult to, to say what we are being given back in return, particularly when it comes to, to equalization. And so those in favor of equalization um, will argue that, that part of the value that, that a province receives in participating in the equalization program is control over its natural resources. And, and, uh, and so if, if equalization were to be removed, perhaps natural resources now become uh, nationalized. Maybe, maybe that is the next step in it because you can't, you can't, I don't think, expect to to um, pull back on the equalization payments and not expect every and, and and expect everything else to remain the same. Right. There's just there's just too many things tied together with this. After all, it is it we are we are a country. There there is some some bond that that ties us together more than simply a name. It's not surprising that we find some financial entanglements. Yeah. And so when when you are threatening to to withdraw from from that program um there are going to be i think other threads that might be pulled on that and so one of those threads that that could be that could be challenged is is a province's ability to to control its natural resources and so during the boom years we in alberta really like that we didn't have yeah. too much problem with equalization yeah payment at that time um uh, we we were we were happy and satisfied and, and quite enjoying the fruits of our of our uh, oil labor as it were. Mm -hmm. um, but when things have gone difficult, uh, gone gone south as far as the, the natural resources payment or resources go, then yeah, we we all of a sudden feel like we've we've been we've been um, unfairly treated. And so we have to be careful, I think, when we when we're considering this this question it's it's a, it's a yes or no question on the on the payment on this on the equalization system itself not merely just a kind of a, a rejiggering of the of the formula that's used in calculating it so we need to be careful about what we might get ourselves into if, if we do withdraw from it it's it's something that 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 that's tough to kind of point a finger to but it's certainly something that that we need to be aware of um, this isn't this isn't this is not an isolated program that you can just remove and and everything else stays where it is. Um, it's it's a federal program, and so it's going to be tied into a lot of different things. Yeah, there's a lot of provinces that rely on that income, and you pull that away from them, and that leaves them in a situation where tax rates have to go up or utilizing resources potentially in damaging ways becomes the only viable option for their economy to survive. It's yeah, it's a risky thing to just pull out from under them. The, uh, when, yeah, when the, the kind of the, one of the arguments is that when you do pull out, uh, from the equalization payment, it creates such a, f a financial imbalance, um, is that you, then you creates uh, a situation where population shifts happen due to the fact that 
public services are better over in one province than in the other. Yes. And so that ends up creating an even further uh, undercutting of, of what kind of revenue a province could can't, could could uh, reap. Um, and, and it can, it can create, I think, some, some, some significant consequences and, and population shifts. Yeah. Uh, if, if there isn't some sort of equalization. Now, certainly, you need some sort of competition between provinces. I, I think that's healthy. Um, but the, the the revenue that, that Alberta gains simply for its geographical position, that's the thing. It, it's, it's not policy. So it's not so much a policy advantage that, that, that equalization is really trying to put, get at. It's the fact that there's some just um, luck of the draw geographical benefits that, that a lot of provinces have. Yeah. And I think this idea of unfairness, it, it can be taken to all, all the different levels. Like we look at it and say how it's unfair between Alberta and the have not provinces out East, but you can say the same thing on a provincial level. It's unfair between El or central Alberta and Southern Alberta or varying levels. So at some point you have to recognize we are a part of Canada. So there has to be some cooperation between the provinces. So I don't, from my perspective, I don't think that the unfairness argument is particularly valid because you can drill that down right to the local taxes and it's going to be the same thing. We pay taxes to the provincial government and the province distributes them to the areas that need it. Yeah. So, yeah, uh, it's at least a, a, a principle level. It, it's the fact that the taxes are distributed across the provinces, across the province, and, and federal taxes are distributed across the the, the country in, in in perhaps uh, different, in unequal ways, or at least something like that. Um, it's it does not it doesn't seem like um, that is enough of a. Of a enough of a, of a reason to get rid of the, the equalization as a whole because it, 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 does, yeah. does, it does apply it does happen on, on all on all levels i think it's probably what i'm getting at yes i agree that that this kind of sense of equalization kind of happens naturally across yes. different different scales different levels what i think we can we might be more uh uh, or what might be a wiser course is to maybe figure out what's the the, the most fair um, formula to use when it comes to these payments. Yes, and that's where I don't think this should be a yes or no question. I don't think this should be a referendum question asking whether we should keep it or get rid of it. It should be a question of whether we keep it as is or whether this needs attention. Yeah, and that kind of leads into the the other another argument against equalization is that it acts as a disincentive for these have-not provinces to, to develop their natural resources. And so we often look at Alberta as being uh, blessed with, with certain natural resources, yes. uh, particularly oil. Um, key, though, is that just because Alberta has a lot of oil, it doesn't mean that these other provinces don't have any other natural resources. And then that is certainly the case. There is a lot, of, and, and Newfoundland and uh, Newfoundland Labrador is, is a, clear example in, in the last 15, 20 years of a province that finally decided um, that they are going to take advantage of those natural resources, yes. even if it does get rid of our equalization payments. Yep. Um, and that's that's true. Even, even with some of these smaller provinces, there's a lot of natural resources that are just left there um, not being developed. And part of it is because of 
the equalization formula. Consider consider that that PEI, Nova Scotia, and and New Brunswick, twenty percent of their provincial revenue is based upon equalization payments. It takes a significant commitment to those resources to make up that difference. Yeah. If so, are you, are you are you going to kind of take a gamble on that on those on that twenty on that almost guaranteed twenty percent in order to kind of um, try to develop what is often volatile, uh, uh, environmentally and politically risky venture into natural resources. Yeah. Um, that's where I think the, um, the issue, something like that, where, where this kind of has a, maybe a disincentivizing um, element to it, could perhaps be taken up in a changing in the, for, in the formula. Um, I, I don't have necessarily what a change would be, but I, th I think something uh, it, that, that, that is more appropriately addressed in, in changing kind of the, the, the calculus um, in the formula regarding natural resources and how that's kind of weighted um, in, in, in developing equalization. And it, it can be done without having to undo equalization as a whole. Um, yeah. And so, yeah, when, when you, when you go into, to the ballot box, um, there, there is certainly, I think an emotional component that just wants to be rid of this equalization thing that, that we want to keep our tax money and tax dollars here. Um, I, I, I don't, I don't know if that is really what the end result would end up being. After all, this is a federal program. Yeah. It doesn't. Just because we stop the equalization system doesn't mean that the um, the feds are going to stop collecting that tax. Yeah, <laughs> there's there's nothing that, that that forces them to do that. And so this can just consider um, consider the equalization system as a whole. What Alberta's role is as a, as as one member of of the country. What are you know, what are what are um, what we you know, what our role is is you know, what our role can be or should be in, in, in helping out other provinces um, and perhaps how we can uh, adjust the, the formula to make this a, a more uh, agreeable and, and fair system. But remember, this isn't, this isn't a binding question. This, this, is a, this is a constitutional question. And so all this is going to do, if it, if it is voted yes, is, uh, is, is give the, the provincial government um, kind of the political capital um, and directive to to argue against um, or argue with the the federal government in trying to create some change here. So you know, ultimately, I don't think even a, a yes one is going to change, or he's going to get rid of uh, a yes vote for removing the federal or to remove the the clause is going to change the constitution. I think if anything, this is just going to give political power or capital to our provincial government. To perhaps force changes in the formula, perhaps, perhaps something like that. Yeah. And so, with that, thank you for joining us on today's show. Uh, if you have any thoughts or comments, please leave them in the comment section. We'd love to hear from you. I am Brian Constine, and I am Michael Roland. This is Pinhole Talk Radio.